who Jesus is and what possible relevance uh, he might have for life today. So last week Bruce was uh, talking about uh, Jesus has uh, come, as his claim was that he came to uh, bring life, that they might have life and have it to the full. Uh, this Next week Dave Fell is going to pick up on another angle of this and today Jesus is hope. That's what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to pray before we start. Uh, join me. Uh, Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for everyone here. We thank you for bringing us here. We thank you that uh, you know us, you know our story. You know how we're feeling today, whether we're feeling full of hope or feeling like in desperate need of hope. And I pray that, Lord, you'd speak to us today and, and uh, tell us again why we can have great hope in you. Amen. Last year, uh, ABC Four Corners did a program uh, on growing up poor in Australia, a, a very wealthy nation, of course. And uh, there was a focus on a suburb that in southwestern Sydney that began 30 years ago as a kind of social experiment into public housing. And they profiled this, this community to reveal the dreadful cost for children of generational unemployment, alcohol abuse, uh, domestic violence and social dislocation. And uh, I interviewed lots of children and one particularly caught my eye. Her name was Jessica. She was 12 years old, fascinating, intelligent little girl who was already getting into trouble at school and you know, things were starting to go badly for her. And I couldn't forget the way she articulated a bleak view of her imagined future. She said that she could still dream of a life where she could have a decent job, uh, where she could have a happy family, where she could be a good mum and be married to someone who wasn't violent. But then she said that, you know, she had no illusions as to how likely that was. She said that would never happen. She stared into the camera. That had never happened with this kind of world-weary cynicism. It was a, it was a real picture of hopelessness uh, that really struck me at the time. Uh, I remember also you know, on, a gra- on a bigger scale talking to Gary Bird, who's an expert in the Arab-Israeli conflict. And he, he described it like this. He said, currently you have, you have a people on one side, the Israelis, who feel hemmed in and they're, they're therefore responding due to that sort of circumstance. And on the other, you have a group, the Palestinians, who are losing hope. And said so that is a desperate situation. When you lose hope, it's a recipe for disaster. If you lose hope, uh, you lose everything. You see, but it's not only disadvantaged 12-year-olds or people who are caught up in conflict situations who express a lack of hope today. So I want to talk about hope because I think in, in light of this campaign, our Jesus' campaign, I want to talk about hope because it is, I think, something that is both desperately needed by every human being and something that's identifiably lacking in our culture. Right? Great need, but it's, it's lacking. And because I happen to believe that Jesus is the source of, the tr- of true hope. Um, how do we get to this point where, as I'm going to try to convince you, that we're lacking hope? How do we get here? Well, the, the theologian Miroslav Volf, 
uh, from Yale University, who some of you might have seen on Q and ABC's Q and A a few weeks ago. He describes when he says a, a significant shift in Western culture in terms of thinking, and with that, he believes has come a decline in hope. So it's gone like this. So we started off with a grand vision of an infinite God. Uh, for centuries, this was kind of the default position. So it was just uh, understood to be the reality, this infinite God. Then from the 18th century onwards, as, as human beings made all these discoveries in, in, in technology and science and sort of taking, spreading out of Europe, sort of spreading out around the world, uh, there was a big shift in it from the transcendent God to human affairs. The good life was then thought of in terms of solidarity with other human beings and the human community, but we didn't need God for that anymore. So we sort of we shoved God aside. And then he says there's another shift in the late 20th century uh, where human flourishing came to be defined more along the lines of the experiences of the individual. So there's been a contraction, great God, to the community, to the self, the individual. And he said, and Wolf reckons that with that you can track a decline in hope. Hope, he says, has been reduced to the scale of self-pampering. Well, the philosopher Alistair McIntyre says that I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, what story or stories do I find myself a part? What, what story am I part, a part of? I can only answer that question, how I'm meant to live, once I've got that one. So I, plenty of commentators suggest that it's the rejection of an ultimate story to which we belong that has led to this lack of hope. And it's a great lack. Without an overarching account of reality, we've been cast adrift on an ocean of self-interest and self-reflection. And see, the problem is that most of us sense that we, we want something more substantial than that, something more substantial than just me, on which to sort of rest my vision for life. And we carry within us, don't we, all of us, this sort of vision for how life could be a bit better than it currently is. And it's this longing that comes to us, that we all have, each of us has this, this sense that we long for things to be different from what they currently are, even when we've got good lives. We long for peace and community. We long for lasting and healthy relationships. We desire forgiveness and fresh starts. We, we long for acceptance. We long for rest from constant striving, rest from anxiety. We long to be known, you know, without the mask on, truly known and loved. And we, we long to be part of something bigger than, than ourselves. That's a very, very human, that, that is the human condition. This sense that things aren't quite how they should be and therefore a longing for something else. That's where hope uh, comes into this. The contemporary responses to this sort of longing and search for hope are many and varied and they represent a way of trying to deal with that reality. Um, we're going to touch on a few of these now. It, it goes from the sublime to the ridiculous. The, um, the, the founder of the Revlon Cosmetics line, Charles Revson, once said that in the factory we make cosmetics, in the store we sell hope. 
we, we sell hope in the, in the store. You see, and we're going to touch on this, this sort of consumerist mentality. Schools me to be a consumer. It schools me to be dissatisfied with my life and to imagine that the solution is to be found in some sort of material gain. Now that might be, and it sometimes is this, you know, materialism as in you're buying lots of stuff. You can find some sort of answer to that. But it's also materialism in the sense of experiences that I can come up with or, or an identity that I can construct around who I am. And maybe that will be the answer. Now this clip that I'm about to show you I think captures some of this. Your life is your life. Don't let it be clubbed into the dank submission. Beyond the watch. There are ways out. There is light somewhere. It may not be much light, but it beats the darkness. Beyond the watch. The gods will offer you chances. It feels like there's something kind of serious going on here, uh, and it's sort of inspiring. It's, and not all of it, not all of it is uh, bad. It's sort of that idea of you know taking your chances in life and, and running with those. And you might start to feel that sort of surge of inspiration, and then you stop and you go, but "This is for a pair of jeans that were made in in a factory in China." And is that the sort of is that what I'm going to rest my identity on, my hopes in? Uh, we could spend a bit of time you know, passing this, this ad and deconstructing it, but I think it's, it's a beautifully creative piece of work, and yet, you know, it's, it's telling us that, what? Well, I don't know, this is it, the genes part of it. There's also that entirely self-focused thing. It's like, it's all about me. It's all about the individual and the self. Now, the gods wait to delight in you. Uh, it's telling a story, a beautiful telling of a story, and that's the story. Christian story tells you something very different from that. It's not all about you, actually. Uh, totally uh, different story. Um, so it's self-referential, the identity of the self, and that's kind of the source of, of hope. There's other ways of approaching this. Sometimes optimism might be the answer, like positive thinking. You know, let's, let's, we've got to think positively. That's where we get our hope from. One of my favourite uh, websites to predict surfing, what the surf conditions are going to be, I won't name it, but it, it, um, it has a, a line that's permanently attached to the, to the website. And it says this, stay happy and you'll be perfectly fine. Stay happy and you'll be perfectly fine. Uh, I'm not sure how well thought out that is, actually. It's hard for me to sort of imagine... Uh, oh, let me see if we can get this back up... Um, is that good? Um, it's hard for me to imagine a more inane statement than this. 
it's, um, it's, it sits alongside the Richard Dawkins' atheist bus campaign, I think, quite well. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying and enjoy your life. Uh, stop worrying and enjoy your life. It, it, I want to say, what could either of those statements possibly have to say to the woman who's just discovered she has terminal cancer and is going to leave behind a husband and three children under ten? What, what possible good is that going to stay happy and you'll be perfectly fine? What comfort would it be to the dad who's watched helplessly while his son has been bullied to the point at school where he, where he doesn't want to live anymore? Would that be a help to him? Or some friends of mine recently, their business went bust and they lost their house. Stop worrying, enjoy your life. Or the drug addict... The woman who's been in rehab for a few weeks, she's been out for a couple of weeks, she finds herself at midnight in a public toilet with a needle in her arm. She's mucked it up again. And maybe this time, her family will finally give up on her. Stay happy, enjoy your life. Is that all we can come up with? Uh, there's, there's lots of different ways people approach this, but my point is that we've got some problems we have to address. What, how are we going to do that? Um, one of the ways that's very popular in the West is this, this phenomenon called amortality. It's about you know, squeezing every last drop out of life and the experiences of life that you can come up with. You've seen people walking around with hats on and t-shirts say YOLO. You've know, seen that? You only live once. Okay? You've got to take your chances because you only live once. This is it. This is the entirety of your experience that you could ever hope for. And so Catherine Mayer, who's written a book called Amortality, The Pleasures and Perils of Living Agelessly. And she's, she's sort of identifying a, a trend in our modern Western culture. And she says it's essentially this. It's living in the same way, at the same pitch, doing and consuming much of the same things from late teens right up to death. Uh, the New York Times describes it as a state of hopeful agelessness where one acts the same from adolescence to the grave. It's a mass condition where you, you don't acknowledge ageing or death. You want to think, if you want to imagine, who, who, what sort of people are we imagining? Madonna, Richard Branson, Mick Jagger, Hugh Hefner, and our very own immortal, Shane Warne. Plenty, around, plenty of us around here too. Uh, Mayer, Catherine Mayer believes that immortality is at least partly a function of a move away from religion as of providing a framework for our lives, along with abandoning the idea that this life is not all there is, that there's more. A friend of mine used to say, it's not a dress rehearsal. You know, you've got to jump in. And I kind of go, well, it kind of is a dress rehearsal if you believe in eternity. Uh, as more of us have embraced the materialistic closed universe, there's nothing outside of what we can see and touch and measure, Many have had to face what Paul Tillich calls the threat of non-being. And the great irony of this, I think it's a great irony, of a culture that worships youth and wants to extend it beyond any reasonable measure, is that I reckon death is the great shadow that hangs over our culture. We are a death-haunted culture. We don't want to talk about it, but so it sits there as the elephant in the room. And we seem to have... A, opted for distraction as the thing to deal with that problem. So much of our modern life involves ways of keeping our mind off the realities 
of a transient existence. And maybe that's what lies at the heart of this phenomenon of amortality. Uh, others, there are more serious attempts at this, others have gone and said, look, we've got to face up to the reality of, what, of the world and deal with it accordingly. The implications of a life where you've removed God from the picture. So Woody Allen is a great example of this. I've seen a, a film uh, you know, interview of him when he talks about it that he gave a few years ago. and He, he says that essentially once you've worked out that there's no God, all that nonsense as he describes it, and you're left with understanding that the universe is heading for destruction, that one day it'll all be gone, that, that it leaves you with this deep sense of meaninglessness. Because one day, everything will be gone. All the world, all the history that we know, all the buildings and the edifices that we've created for ourselves. Beethoven, Mozart, Leonardo da Vinci, gone. The whole thing. And then he says, you realise that I too am part of this meaningless kind of soup and I will also be gone. He says, every hundred years, someone comes along and flushes a great big toilet and everyone on the earth gets washed away and they're replaced by someone else. Everyone goes, that annoying neighbour of yours, that person in your family that drives you nuts, you realise it doesn't matter, nothing matters. Whether your stuff comes back from the dry cleaner, whether your film gets accepted into, you know, wherever. He, uh, he says, you realise that there's great meaningless in our existence but you can't live like that so the, get this the job of the artist is to help people understand or convince people that it's worth getting up each day and facing that terrible reality that we have you've got to face the reality and somehow find a way of keeping on going and that's the job of the artist and he says it's a, it's a, it's a big challenge well I'll say that's a massive challenge you see when you've faced up to the blind, pitiless existence of the universe, if there is a universe without God, then that's the sort of thing you kind of you have to face up to. You see this in all sorts of great modern uh, literature and art, and I won't I won't go on about this, but great programs, some of the best quality programs. There's a sort of a darkness to them these days. It's an interesting phenomenon to me. There's a, a lack of redemption in them. Some of you are familiar with these sorts of programs. And I could talk more about, about that, but I won't. Um, books like The Road, fabulous uh, works. But nonetheless, there's a sense that the world is a world that is messed up and cannot be put right again. Are we depressed enough yet? <laughs> so what about Jesus and hope? passage that we read earlier today is a very famous kind of grand passage the opening to the Gospel of John it's called the prologue and it's like entering the foyer of a building where, where what, everything else emerges from what you first encounter and it's a very uh, almost poetic summary of the meaning and the significance of the life of Jesus who's described here as the Word it's a familiar passage to most of us uh, the hope of Christianity is based on this idea of God, the creator of the universe, entering into the human condition, entering into the chaos to sort it out, uh, to conquer death, 
to bring in God's kingdom so that we can be realigned to the Creator, where he can, we can be his people and he can be our God. That's, that's what this is about. And you see this right at the beginning of this. In the beginning, does that remind you of anything? The first verse of the Bible. In the begin, first sentence of the Bible. In the beginning, God, God created the heavens and the earth. And here John picks up on that. In the beginning was the Word. He is trying to, um, to give this a, very, a real cosmic significance. And it's meant to be a cosmic kind of vision here, right at the beginning of the Gospel. You see, this is where we find the core, the heart of Christianity in this entirely surprising action of God where this king arrives as a servant and goes to his death and humiliation. So that, so that, as John goes on to say, that we might have life, and that we might have it to the full. He, he situates this within the great story of, of Christianity. The grand story is this. It's creation through the fall, the fall that produces all these things that we've been talking about, to redemption through Jesus Christ's life, death and resurrection. And then to new creation, the renewal of all things and the mending of all things. So again, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. This man was from the beginning, from the beginning of everything and he was God, this man. It's a, this is an outrageous story. It's an utterly outrageous story. Uh, through him all things were made, and without him nothing ha- that has been made has been made. This man, the creator of all things, in him was life, and the life, that life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness. There, there is a darkness. Right? There is a darkness. The light, he comes as a light in the darkness. Some people reject that. The darkness has not understood it. But he comes, and to those who receive him and believe in his name, he gives them the right to become the children of God. And I love this last bit. The word became flesh, he made his dwelling among us. He, he dwelt with us. And we've seen his glory. We're telling you this story because we've seen it. We've seen his glory. He came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. This is the cosmic cosmos-altering story. And C.S. Lewis is surely right when he says that the Christian uh, Christianity is a, sta- is a statement which, if it's false, is of absolutely no importance at all. If it's true, it's of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. It can't be that. It doesn't allow for that. Leave us with that option. And so what does the life of Jesus mean? Many people have found, many of you have found, that Jesus is the one who is able to fulfil your need for meaning and coherence, giving you a sense of personal significance, telling you not what to do but who you are. Lots of people here can testify to that. You see, this life that we remember is picking up on the notion of every person being made in the image of God and therefore of infinite value. You, you get this kind of endorsement of that by the God himself becoming a person. What an endorsement of humanity is that. And in the opening of Mark's Gospel, where Jesus, the first time Jesus speaks, he says this, the time has come. It's like saying, time's up. 
The time's come. The kingdom of God's here. Repent and believe the good news. And Luke, Luke adds in his telling of this, this quote from Isaiah 61, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to, pro- to proclaim good news to the poor. He set me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. To set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And those who were familiar heard this would have remembered Isaiah 61 which adds, to bind up the broken hearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and to comfort all who mourn, to, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. Great vision, isn't it? Beauty instead of ashes, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Anyone, I reckon, would, would, if they looked at that, would say that is, a, that is a beautiful, wonderful vision. And especially if they came convinced that it was true. See, Christianity is about a future hope. No doubt about that. But it's a future hope that's shedding light on the present. It impacts the present. It's supposed to impact the present. It makes every bit of difference to life now. Where Woody Allen wants to say, Nothing really matters at all. Nothing we do has any significance ultimately. Christianity wants to say the absolute reverse of that is everything we do and everything we experience has an eternal significance. It's an incredibly motivating thing. If you think that way, you can think that even hanging out the washing or vacuuming the house has, in a sort of funny sort of way, an eternal significance because of who God is and because of what Jesus has done. This is a, a powerful, contrary message to the one we, we were painting earlier. What about Jesus' death? Crucial, as we come up to Easter, we'll remember this. It represents an emphatic, again, measure of the value of people because Jesus said he was dying in the place of every person. That's what he was on about. So according to the people who wrote the Gospels, this death is a crucial act in overcoming the division between us and God. A division that we're incapable of kind of dealing with ourselves. It's a life-giving message. It's water in the desert. And so at the cross and at the resurrection, critically, we find here the solution. This powerful, compelling reason to believe in God's solution to the world we find ourselves in. And you know, I've, I've uh, felt this myself. This sort of hope. Uh, I've had lots of times where my life's gone really well, but other times where it's, it's, there's been a deep need of hope. And I guess I'm old enough to have sat with friends and family who've gone through things that I think are you know, almost unendurable. And the ones who've had faith in this picture that we're painting today have it in such a way that it doesn't sweep their misery under the carpet or sort of make it okay somehow. But, you know, as if it doesn't really matter. It's not like that. But it's like they don't give way to despair. This is the sort of hope that we're talking about. So when I'm talking about Christian hope, I don't mean just this sort of everyday expectation. This is what I think our culture thinks of in hope, of things that just happen, you know, we, we can sort of imagine something good happening, we hope it happens. It's a lot more deep than optimism too. Because optimism is all about things that are already there. And we just sort of are optimistic that that might, that might turn out well for us. That's, that's a different thing to what we're talking about here. Because the hope that the, Christian, the Christianity wants to offer 
is talking about a, a gift from, of something that comes from the outside. It's breaking into our world through the life, death, and crucially, the resurrection of Jesus. This is about something from the outside breaking in. It's not dependent on the, whatever strength I can come up with or whatever things are around me that I can hope for. And so what seems impossible in this way of thinking becomes real and then gives birth to hope. What seems impossible becomes real and it gives birth to hope. You get examples of this, right? The baby born in obscure circumstances in an outpost of the Roman Empire uh, turns out to be God in the flesh. A humiliating and brutal crucifixion of a little known Jewish rabbi. It seems to sort of end his career before it even started. Turns out to be the path to salvation and the key to life itself. This is a hope that the Bible says doesn't disappoint because it's a profound and abiding sense that we have an assured future but that's invaded the present. And it's all about the restoration of broken things, of fractures, of deep fractures in our lives that we feel like can't be healed any other way. I know plenty of people who can testify to this and one, I'm just going to show you a short clip from her. Ruth Padilla de Bors has been a missionary uh, she's, she's involved in theological education and currently works for World Vision in South America. And she has a story of hope here, the sort that I'm talking about, after a terribly tragic uh, experience for her that she relates in this clip. Well, yeah, you spoke about the realities of life. You've experienced some pretty harsh realities yourself. I wonder if you could comment on the way in which your faith has spoken into a uh, time of great suffering. Several years ago when um, um, my husband and two of my little children were, uh, we were uh, filming a bushfire in Ecuador where we lived and um, some men came up and they, it was a carjacking, uh, but in the process they actually shot my husband uh, to death in front of us. And um, many people, as they walked with me through my grieving process, um, said, well, how can you still believe that God is good and God is there? And, um, and actually for me the experience was, was such that I didn't only um, experience God um, kind of giving me strength to endure or being compassionate towards me, but I experienced um, God's suffering in this unjust, unnecessary death. And I got a whole new understanding of what it meant that Jesus died um, and took on human suffering and took on the consequences of our of our violent society of our greed, of, of things that distort our perspective so much that for these men a car was more valuable than a life. And since then becoming so much more sensitive to, to God's presence in the midst of the suffering of others. Um, and, and often I think people that suffer maybe can actually be even more aware of God's presence sometimes than when we have it all put together or we pretend we have it all put together. You get what I'm talking about there, right? There's not a not a sort of a whitewashing of this tragedy, but there is a deep sense that there's more and there's more to hope in. So just to finish, 
uh, in, in my work at the Centre for Public Christianity, uh, we are often accused of believing in fairy tales. Uh, it's a common thing. You write an article, someone writes in, yeah, you believe in your imaginary friend, and good, good luck. Uh, yeah, we get that sledge, we kind of resist that. But there's one thing I want to concede today that about the Christian story that shares something with the fairy tale genre. And that is this, that the biblical story is like the fairy tale in that it doesn't deny the existence of pain and sorrow and suffering, of danger and sadness and evil and disappointment and even death. But what it does deny, along with the fairy tale, is universal final defeat. It denies that. It strongly denies universal final defeat. See, Christianity tells you a story that if you open yourself up to it, will not only have a ring of truth to it, but it will connect in profound ways to the childlike longing that we all have for happy endings, for justice to be achieved, for miraculous escapes, and for the saving of the innocent. The Christian story is a story of evil being conquered, of chaos coming out of disorder and ultimately, I guess, it's the mending of the fractures in all things. It's the same story that tells a little ten-year-old boy as he walks out the church behind the coffin of his dad as we saw with one of our loved families here earlier this year, behind the coffin of his dad. It tells him that this is not the end of the story. Uh, it's a powerful example of hope that at this Easter time we get. It's a substantial hope. It's not based on a shallow optimism. It's not based on whatever I can conjure up myself. But it's based on the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, which makes every bit of difference to life now and into the future. Well, may that hope sustain us all as we go into uh, the, the, the week and the Easter season.